When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And it is a beautiful Sunday morning out there. Did you remember to set your clocks back? If otherwise, you got up about an hour early. Not as serious a mistake as it is in the spring when we set our clocks forward. And if you forget to do that, then you're an hour late in everything you're doing. Uh, if you didn't set them back last night, you just missed that extra hour of staying in bed before you got up to do your Sunday chores. Or maybe you're one of those people that doesn't have to set an alarm and get up. I, uh, oh, that must be a new experience. I guess I experience that uh, little vacation every now and then. But anyway, it was a gorgeous, is a gorgeous morning out there. But driving in, beautiful sunrise, little ground fog hanging out over the fields, and just a nice mid-40s temperature mornings don't get a whole lot better than this and it's going to be beautiful it's going to be something like this they save for the next week or so so great week for gardening great week to get out and get your fall fertilizer on great week to plant those cool weather veggies and those cool weather flowers i could just go on and on about all the projects that you could be doing or you could just be sitting out there and enjoying the beautiful landscape that you have created we're here for the next three hours to talk gardening we're going to start with aj and mac i think their couple lines still open if you want to grab one, you know the number, 210-599-5555. I hate to keep people waiting, so let's see what sort of situations are going on with A.J. this morning. Good morning, A.J. Hey, the word is singular this morning. It's singular, not plural. <laughs> <laughs> but the day is early. <laughs> Everything's going your way, I guess. Only if you're in the wrong lane. Oh, oh, all right. <laughs> or coming your way if you're in the wrong lane. Going your way if you're in the right lane. I guess that would be the way to put it. Right, right. I've got uh, on on our place out there in Lavaca County, an old um, cattle feeder there that's crumbling, and I started taking the metal off of it uh, the other day. And there's about four or five of those little red pepper, I guess chili patine bushes out there. Yeah, uh-huh. What's... What's a good time and to to take them out because I'm going to move them here to Victoria, and uh, how do I need to go about it? Any how special big? instructions? How big are they, AJ? They're probably knee high at the highest. Okay, then you'll be able to get a fair amount of the root system. You know, I've got some of them around my place that are probably four feet tall and four feet wide. The really big ones, it's hard to get enough roots to transplant them real successfully. But that size, yeah, those are very, very movable. They will freeze to the ground uh, in the winter months uh, when and if we get, you know, a hard freeze. So I would suggest moving them before uh, that kind of weather sets in. And, you know, we're we're into November now. We could have a frost uh, in the hill country almost any time. Not as likely to get it in Lavaca County, but I would say at this point, the sooner the better. And you just want to, you know, dig as much of the root ball as possible. Uh, if you're going to replant immediately, which I would suggest 
just take a piece of plastic or even a garbage bag or something like that, wrap up that root system so it doesn't dry out any more than possible when it, while it makes the journey. I replant it, water it in with a little Garrett juice, a little Super Thrive, and uh, I would suggest that, in you know, again, in Victoria, you're not as likely to get much frost at all, but if we do get frost in the next two or three months before it uh, before they can get established, I would cover them. Once they have become established, they're pretty bulletproof. You know, mine had six inches of snow and five degrees last winter, and they still bounce back uh, like gangbusters this spring. So uh, the, the deal is going to be get them moved, get them transplanted, get them established before they're uh, subjected to any real severe weather conditions. All right, all right. I'll see what I can do about that then. The, the, I just thought of something else. Uh, on a half acre of just common Bermuda grass, how much uh, Medina Growing Green would you apply? Um, figuring that a uh, is this a, is this uh, like coastal Bermuda you cut for hay or is no, this a lawn? No, 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 no. This is just regular yard Bermuda. Okay, so a half acre is uh, roughly, give or take, 20,000 square feet. A bag of, a 40-pound bag of Medina's Growing Green does about 4,000 feet. So uh, my feeble mathematical brain tells me that's going to be somewhere between five and six bags. <laughs> we, I tell you, we're getting somewhere this morning. Uh, we're getting somewhere. Oh, well... Bobby, and I'm still on my first cup of tea, so, you know, it's, things things are off to a good start. Must have been that extra hour of sleep last night. Yeah. I'm going to let you go and let somebody else visit with you, and I do. Thank you, Bob. Talk you know, to it's you always, later. Always a pleasure visiting with you, AJ. Thank you so much. Hey, ah, next, next in line is Mac. Good morning, Mac. Good morning. I morning, sir. That ex- I think that extra hour of sleep did make a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least for 24 hours or so yes well i have a three-part question on the same thing okay this uh regards totally wildlife food plots okay and i was having a discussion yesterday with somebody and we were trying to figure out when is the cutoff time in the fall when it's too late to plant something like oats or vetch or winter rye? Well, that's a good question. Where are you Where are you planting these food plots? Up above Laredo, to, okay. the, to the west of Laredo. Okay. You, you've got time. The, the only real consideration, and is this place you can irrigate, or are you going to have to rely on Mother Nature to moisten the soil? Mother, Mother Nature. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the... Uh, the real cutoff as far as timing, I guess there really is no real cutoff, but the thing you have to remember that just like almost anything else, when the little plant first comes up, whether it is rye oats uh, or vetch or clover or whatever, it's not going to be cold hardy for a week or two. It's got to get some time to build up the sugar, build up what we call the bricks and the sap so that it will be resistant to freezing weather. Once that is done, then you're pretty much set for the, you know, for the winter, for the cool season. But you would like to have your little seedlings up and growing for at least a week or two before they get a heavy frost. 
frost on them. Now look deeply into your crystal ball and <laughs> figure out when that first frost is going to come and uh, figure out how early you need to plant them to have a chance of some rain to get them sprouted and then have just a little time for them to uh, harden off as far as the cold goes. So I'd say ASAP, get them, get them in as soon as you possibly can. We typically start planting those cover crops uh, in your area probably by the middle of October most years. So uh, you're probably two, three weeks later than would be ideal. But I'd say in most cases, uh, not knowing what the rain's going to do, but in most cases you should certainly have another uh, two or three weeks to get it done if we have a typical typical fall and winter season. Well, I've always said that it's an experiment. Everything I do. Well, life is an experiment. Um, if, have you ever planted vetch in, in these uh, in in these food plots before? No, all I've ever uh, planted is just oats. Okay, and I've been ta- hearing you talk about vetch mm-hmm. and uh, winter rye and clover. Yeah, the the nice thing about vetch and clover is that those plants are legumes, which means they have the little nodules on their roots that are able to take nitrogen from the air and turn it into fertilizer for the plants. And that means they're going to build your soil. That means they're going to be sort of self-fertilizing, as it were. The thing is, the first time you plant a legume into an area, you really should inoculate the seed with this bacteria. And whoever you buy your seed from should have the inoculant. It's it's just a very little bit. It's like uh, less than a pound of inoculant for a couple hundred pounds of seed. So it's not a big expense, and uh, it's not anything. I just... Uh, I, my life has been such that I really haven't had time to plant a lot of food plots the past few years in the nursery business, but I used to just dump my seed. I had an old uh, uh, cedar that, you know, with a metal box it was like, or I still have it, it's about 10 inches wide and about 6 feet long, and I just dump my seed in there and then sprinkle my inoculant over the top and stir it up with a stick and go plant. So it doesn't really add a lot, but it is important to do the first time you plant a legume in an area. Now, once once you've done it one time, those nitrogen-fixing bacteria stay in the soil, and you should not have to re-inoculate your seed. But it is a good idea to do it the first time if you possibly can. One other thing that I would tell you where you're planting oats uh, as a you know as a as a wildlife plot there are oats that are what we call forage oats that are grown more for the amount of foliage that they produce and therefore the more forage they produce as opposed to seed oats which are planted uh, in hopes of harvesting you know a crop of, of oats for processing for whatever purpose so when you go looking for your seed ask about forage oats because I think they are um, they are very definitely superior as far as what you would want to put into a into a food plot one I hear when I'm driving in to do my show Saturday mornings which is very early I hear the guys uh, out of Houston that do an outdoor program which is pretty interesting but uh, they advertise for a brand called Plot Spike Uh, I have never planted it I can't speak for it but I know that that is one of the forage oats out there that is pretty widely available and has pretty good track record as far as uh, its use in food plots it's A little bit more cold hardy than many oats are, and it produces uh, double or triple the amount of forage that your standard seed oats do. Well, okay, that's a big help. And let me ask you this: in the spring, on the same plots, mm-hmm. uh, 
if you were planting something like Milo or hay grazer or something else, uh huh. What when would be the? Uh, is there a time when it should? And again, this is just for forage. It's not sure. for anything else. Is there a time when it's too late to plant in the spring? Not really. Um, you know, when you when you plant too late, you get a nasty little insect called a midge that can get into them that can reduce the seed production, but it's not devastating. And if you're planting these for mainly for game birds like dove and quail, uh, they're still going to get plenty of seed out of it. But ideally, uh, I would be going in with your your Milo or whatever you're planting, it's about just the same as you would if you were planning to harvest it, and that's going to be in most cases uh, sometime in either March or April. Wouldn't want to put it off too much later than that. Okay, and the third part of that question is: Do you have any ideas for anything in the spring besides Milo or hay grazer? You know, again, it kind of depends on, you know, on what your objectives are. Uh, a lot of people plant sunflowers. Uh, sunflowers are, uh, some people consider them a weed, but you're not going to find anything much better for doves and a lot of your songbirds as well. Uh, so that's a, you know, that is always a good potential crop. You also have to consider that, you know, it's going to be, you're going to have a great deal more predation on some plants than you are on others. So uh, those deer that you invite in to graze on your forage oats in the winter months, they're going to stick around and want to chomp down on whatever you plant in the spring. And uh, if you have mainly whitetails, then planting something like Milo or something like that's not going to be bad because whitetail are browsers they're not grazers but if you're planting uh, other forb type plants then uh, you are going to get a lot more predation by the deer if you have access in your area they are grazers just like cattle are and you're pretty much going to have to exclude them from your food plots if you want to get uh, any kind of leafy uh, vegetation up i think the axis deer i've started to see a few axis deer yep. uh, hit along the road right and uh I've always heard that axis deer spread. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they're they're a deer out of India. They are not as cold hardy. They don't apparently don't develop an undercoat, so they're not as resistant to the cold. And they, I was just listening to some biologists uh, this past week. Figure about thirty percent of them froze and died in this winter. It's kind of a shame that it wasn't about eighty percent of them because they. You know, they are invasive. They do compete with a lot of other game animals. On the other hand, if you are a hunter, uh, I can tell you from experience that Axis is some of the best meat you will ever eat. And because they are a not a native species, they can be hunted 365 days a year. Uh, I I kind of got tired of hunting a few years ago. I just didn't find much sport left in it. And I always processed all my own meat, so it was a lot of work. You know, you, when you pull the trigger, you're setting yourself up for about four hours of skinning and yeah, you know cutting up and wrapping. <laughs> but uh, but if you if you are a hunter and you do you know enjoy the enjoy the meat as every hunter should uh axis are one of the tastiest things because they are grazers um I, you know i think i think people always talk about oh that deer has a gamey flavor to it 
Well, heck, if you took the best calf in South Texas, tied it on the hood of your truck, and drove 200 miles to the processing plant, that would taste a little gamey, too. Nobody ever accused my venison of being gamey, but I will tell you that Axis, Axis is some of the best meat I've ever eaten. That's the same thing as my dad always said that, that about gamey meat. He said if you tie it on your hood, you'll, uh, uh, you will definitely get, if you want a gamey taste, that's the best way to get the gamey taste. I and think I, your dad was a wise man. He was. And I, I had a friend that uh, told me he drove by a, uh, or he was talking to somebody. And she said she drove by a a deer processing place last year, Mm -hmm. and there was these deer laying out on the pavement (laughs) Mm -hmm. in front. And then she drove back in the afternoon, and it was kind of a cool day, but they were still laying out there. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's different ways. If if a person is just bound and determined to get that gamey taste, it's it's quite easy to attain. Oh, it most certainly is. And and you're just describing one of the principal reasons that uh, in the days that I hunted, I always processed all my own meat because I figured the chances of getting your own venison back from a locker plant was not real high. But uh, Uh, anyway, Mac, I I hope that helps you, and uh, I wish you a very pleasant Sunday. You get out and enjoy. Thanks for the call this morning. Many thank yous. I appreciate it. You too. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, I get to tell you about Medina, talking about a good fertilizer. One thing I would tell you, if you are using Medina's Growing Green product... Um, for acreage uh, do talk to Stuart about buying it if you have the equipment to handle it if you have a you know a front end loader or a bobcat or anybody planting acreage probably has you know something they can lift a thousand pound sack with Medina does put that fertilizer up in thousand pound actually I think five hundred and thousand pound hampers for you and that saves you a good deal of money because you don't have to pay for the bagging and the handling and everything that goes through what they do uh, to make that wonderful product available to us so if you putting it out in bulk and many farmers and ranchers do be sure you talk to them about their bulk packaging uh, program but for those of us that are just putting it on our yards or gardens and flower beds man this is a time of year to get it out there the wonderful thing about medina's growing green fertilizer is it is non-seasonal we use it in the spring and in the fall does not it's still a lot better than anything says winterizer on the bag and uh you use it 365 days a year hot cold wet or dry it's always a good day to put out medina's growing green feel the same way about their liquid fertilizers i love the has to grow plant and let me tell you i alternate it with that new medina liquid fish product and the results are just amazing Wishing your soil was a little bit softer or trying to speed up the action in your compost pile? Take a look at Medina's Plus, uh, Medina's product called Medina Plus, which is just an improved form of their wonderful soil activator. Medina Agriculture is just a company that's been developed and been right here in our area for over 50 years, working with nature than ag- rather than against nature to help you garden more successfully, whether it's your landscape, your yard, or your acreage. Learn more. Go to, go to their website and just know Know that if you see the name Medina Agriculture on the label, you know there's quality inside Medina Ag. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this beautiful morning. Looks like we're going to talk next to John and Ron and Betty. John is up first. Good morning, John. 
Oh, gosh, so good. Oh, your text didn't come through then. Um, okay, David, uh, David and then Gloria. Good morning, David. Morning, Bob. How are you? I'm off to a good start. How about you? Oh, it's time to get going here. I'll <laughs> Very good. Well, how can I help make your day better? Look, I have a remember on the nut station that I had in the front yard? Yes, sir. To you about. I'm going to mow it down real low and I want to put some molasses on it. Okay. I have a, uh, I have a sprayer in the bottle thing. How much molasses do I put in that thing? In that bottle? You, you know, if you're going to spray it on and remember you got to soak it pretty good, um, I would, you know, I would just put straight molasses in there and I would set it for about two to three ounces per gallon. Now, if your molasses is too thick, if it doesn't go through your sprayer well, then, uh, uh, you know, dilute it 50-50 with water and set it for six ounces per gallon. That might be the best thing to do. Yeah, half water, half molasses, and then set your sprayer to put out about six ounces per gallon. All righty. Have a question. Have a nice day. (laughs) <laughs> you do the same, David. It's always a pleasure visiting with you. Have a couple of open lines. Thank you, sir. Uh, grab one if you like. It gets real busy as we get later in the show, and you know the number, 210-599-5555. Gloria is up next. Good morning, Gloria. Are you with us, Gloria? Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, how are you doing? Off to a good Loving start. Loving weather, right? It is just absolutely gorgeous out there. If I could, I'd, well, it might be a little chilly. I'd say I'd love to drag my little tie line broadcast unit, uh, out on the, out on the deck out back this morning. It's so pretty. It's gorgeous. Well, I just have something really quick. Uh, I've, I've been bad about, um, remembering to put my seeds, my wildflower seeds. Uh huh. Uh, and, uh, it's been three years of doing. I'm um, doing that, and I still have them. Don't they go bad? The if you most varieties, if they get a chance to reseed, if they get a chance to set seed and come back, they will. If the weather conditions are right, uh, some of them are better about coming back than others. But the you know. Uh, they they need to be growing in the right place. Most wildflowers want a lot of sun, and they make mm-hmm. much more seed in a sunny spot. And you can't mow them down too early in the spring, and that's one issue we have with the city of San Antonio all the time is they start screaming that your yard looks like weeds and you better mow it or they'll throw you in jail. But um, you and you think I'm joking. I am not joking about that. But uh, you you have to be sure that you've let them stay up, no matter how weedy they look. You've got to be sure you've left them in you know in and growing until that seed is mature and falls because most of our wildflowers are either annuals meaning they only grow one season has to have to come back from seed or um, we call them uh, bi-seeding or uh, biannuals which just simply means they have two life stages but they still you know only live for one year so you've got to have a constant reseeding going on by nature uh, if you're not able to do that then you're going to have to be replanting on an annual basis but uh, it's you know it, it's it's always an issue leaving them long enough to have the seed uh, get you know get ripe and drop because they start looking pretty pretty weedy before that happens the flowers go and then it's sometimes four to six weeks before the seed matures 
mature. So uh, if you are able to do that, then typically your wildflowers will come back, not only come back, but to get thicker every year. Wow. Um, that's great. I, I noticed that uh, last year, would you believe, I, I was surprised that I had so many of them. Oh, yeah. The, the weather was good last year. And the way we're going into winter, if we continue to have these good rains every couple of weeks, we'll have our prettiest wildflower season in years. Next spring should be even better if the if the weather continues in this uh, alternate pattern of lots of sunshine and then good moisture and then back to lots of sunshine. We Things are setting up now for a wonderful wildflower again a year again next year, but uh, we're just going to have to watch the weather and see what it does because that's one thing we will have no influence over. Well, that's true. But again, um, can I can I take them out of the package and put them on the ground? You know? Yes, it is time. All of your wildflower seeds, it's time to get them planted. Um, ideal, yeah, it, it, it's fine. Uh, we normally start planting in October, but this is very early November. Uh, you should have plenty of time to, uh, to plant whatever you like to plant, whether it's a mix or some people, you know, want to go with straight larkspur or straight blue bonnets or California poppies or something like that. But uh, I'd plant them today if you're able to. I'll do that today. Okay. Well, thanks let, a lot, let me tell you one it. more thing, Gloria. You probably uh-huh. already know this, but for the benefit of our other listeners, uh, our wildflowers in Texas are many times different varieties than what are grown in other parts of the country. And I, if you're looking for a great source of wildflower seed, uh, there's a place up in, in Fredericksburg now. It used to be over in Eagle Lake, Texas, but they're in Fredericksburg now called Wild Seed Farms. That's and the only they, place I get them, Bob. Well, you're getting them right because a lot of people order them they get to see these ads in the co-op magazines right. and things and come out mm-hmm. of colorado and things like that and that's fine if you live in colorado but if you live in texas go with texas seeds and uh um, i know douglas king sometimes has a pretty good blend as well but the ones that you know are good for the hill country wild seed farms is is uh, the source that i really like yes i do too i've uh, i've always uh, bought them from them uh so thank you again bob appreciate the advice I appreciate the call, and you have a wonderful Sunday, Gloria. Appreciate you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, let's take a little break here and talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Love talking about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And, uh, gosh, I just, you know, periodically look at the roof that's been on my house for 20 years or so. I look at our beautiful roof here on Shades of Green Nursery and think about the storms they've been through, the hailstorms that caused everybody to have to replace those old shingle roofs, uh, the hard freeze that damaged a lot of roofs this past winter. You know, it had no effect on our roofs whatsoever. Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof is truly a lifetime quality roof. Our roof here at Shades of Green, I mean, it stood up to baseball-sized hail, and if you get up with a magnifying glass, you might find some tiny little dimples, but you certainly wouldn't see any major damage in the in the kind of storm. They just tore up everybody else's roofs. In fact, I asked Southwest Metal Roofing Systems when that little tornado blew through here a few years ago. I said, did y'all have any any roofs damaged in uh, that big, big windstorm and tornado? And uh, the answer was, only the one that a tree fell on. If you're looking for the last roof you'll ever put on your home, it should be a roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Plus, you're going to get a discount on your homeowner's insurance. 
insurance, you're going to save money on your utility bill every month, you're going to get a really good looking roof, and if you don't like the look of standing seam metals, they have other roof styles like slate or ceramic tile or shake shingles, look just like those products, but they're the same metal, and uh, it doesn't take nearly as much uh, superstructure to support uh, a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof. There are just so many reasons I firmly believe that everybody that wants to stop worrying about the roof should simply call 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to those uh, phone calls. It's going to be Matt and Kathy and Don. Matt is up first. Good morning, Matt. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you? Good morning, sir. It's just anybody's not good this morning has a severe problem. It's it's just gorgeous out there. Boy, it is beautiful. Hey, Bob, I have uh, some general questions in regarding to uh, in regards to propagating from seeds. So, okay. So, so I've I've. I've started doing this. I like to I like to do them in four inch pots and give them away to friends. So let, let me let me start with one example. Would be a cilantro. So mm-hmm. a month ago, I uh, I planted a flat of cilantro seeds, uh, soaked them in uh, liquid seaweed for twenty minutes, I think. Uh, okay. And put them in. I used um, uh, the potting soil, uh, Nature Creation potting soil. Okay. And and they came up uh, probably ninety ninety percent of them. But they mm-hmm. seem to be languishing at about one inch for, okay. for the longest time. I've fertilized them once with Medina fish at, a, at a, I think, a half rate. Okay. And my, my question is, is there anything I'm not doing, or should I be using different potting soil? Should I put them on a grow light tonight? They're oh, getting yes. about eight hours of sunlight. Is uh, it direct, direct top bright sun? It is direct sun. Okay. And are they outside? They are outside. Okay. You know, it, uh, it, you're probably, you may just be expecting a little bit too much out of them. Um, they, they really would like all day sun. They like these cold temperatures. If you, if you want to ask yourself if things are going well, very gently take one of those four inch pots and simply tap, you know, tap the, the, plant out of it. Uh, Try not to break up the soil ball, but look and see where the roots are. Uh, You should have by now, you should have roots all the way out. If they've been in that pot for two, three, four weeks, those roots should be out to the edge of the pot. If you don't find that your roots have grown that much, then you're either keeping them too wet that would probably be the most likely scenario, but uh, it could be that you're keeping them too dry. But the the top, the growth of the top is always going to follow the growth of the roots. So if I'm looking at something and I don't think it's uh, growing as fast as it should or looks as good as it should and it's in a pot, I'm going to tap it out and take a look at the roots because the the root growth has to precede the top growth. And my guess is, as far as I'm concerned, you're doing you're doing everything right. If you're giving them that good bright sunlight, you're you know feeding them uh, every couple of weeks at least. Uh, you're letting them hopefully get good and dry on the surface between waterings. About the only thing I can only way I can account for they're not really thriving uh, is is you've got a water issue going either too much or too little. You do need to water very thoroughly, and sometimes that's hard to do with a uh, 
very tender little seedling. If you don't already have one, I would look for a misting nozzle. I think the most common brand out there is called Fog, F-O-G-G, and it literally is just like a fog coming out of the end of the hose, and it's such a gentle stream. You can hold it there. It may take, you know, 30 seconds to really wet that pot, but you've got to be sure that when you water that you really are soaking the whole thing and then letting it dry to the proper point. And uh, back to the sunlight, I, I, it's, they're going to do better with afternoon sun than morning sun, but my suspicion is that it's it's got to be a water issue, either too much or too little, if they're not taken off the way you expected them to. Yeah, yeah, it, it may be too much, because I've noticed that that, uh, that soil seems to hold a little more water in there. The, the pots are, are heavy even after a couple of three days. Yeah. So, and the uh, thing to remember, the thing to remember is that where the water goes when you put it on a plant, it's not being lost through evaporation except very early on before the plant has much roots. Once the plant becomes established, the way the water goes back into the atmosphere is it's taken up through the roots of the plant, released out through the leaves in the in form of what we call trans uh, uh what am I trying to say? Uh, transpiration and uh when when things are staying too wet early on that can inhibit things once your cilantro has sprouted if you can put it on a propagating mat keep that soil a little bit warmer while the top of the plant staying cool that's going to speed things up uh, the one other thing you might do if you feel that the soil is just staying too wet next batch switch and use uh, nature's creations uh, cactus and succulent mix it has a little less organic material it drains a little more quickly and in your situation it might be a better germinating mix than the regular potting soil okay okay that, that's that's great so i was going to ask you a a parsley has been a real challenge for me, and I, I've even soaked that overnight in liquid seaweed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what 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 plants do you want to use a heating mat on? Because like spinach, you know that that you you always talk about that it needs to be cool. The soil needs to be mm-hmm. cool. Would, would would you use a propagating mat for something like spinach? I would let it germinate and start to grow, and then I would put it on a propagating mat. Uh, the ideal situation, once a seedling has germinated, is warm roots, cool top. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. Um, is it necessary, that do, do these little uh, four-inch pots, before the seed exposes or the plant exposes itself, is it even necessary that they're in the sun? Um, it's probably better. Uh, some seed and their ball, the ball seed company used to put out a, a list and I don't know if they still do. If you ever are in half price books or something, see if you can fall, find something called the ball red book. It's about 800 pages long. Used to cost almost a hundred dollars, but you can probably find a used copy for five dollars. And I know in there, and they used to put in their seed catalogs a list of plants which require some seed requires light to germinate. Some seeds you want to put only on the huh. surface of the ground. Other seeds you want to bury it with just a very thin layer of material over the top. Other seeds should be planted a little bit deeper. And boy, talk about something that I could never remember. Um, but that might be something to see if you can find because uh, various of these seeds require some light to germinate. And in that case, you very definitely you know want your seed bed exposed to sunlight, whether it's inside or out. Okay. Is there any is there any secret to parsley? I, I talked to Wendy the other day, and she was telling me 
eating carrots are they're a hard little seed and to soak them a little longer which i tried but yeah um that i you know um it's just one of those seeds that has a lower germination rate, and I haven't, you know, found any secret. One thing you might try, and I love liquid seaweed as a soak, but you might try garret juice. Garret juice has a little bit of apple cider vinegar in it, and that very dilute acetic acid seems to really help with some seed. With some, it doesn't make a lot of difference, and with some, I think if you soak too long, it's detrimental. But parsley may be one of those seeds that just that little bit of uh, acid scarification is what we would call it, uh, might germinate better. So uh, take a take a little batch of seed and try soaking it for five or ten minutes in garret juice rather than just liquid seaweed and see if that improves your germination rate. Okay, can I, can I ask one more? Of course. Um, several weeks ago, somebody asked a question about um, how to propagate uh, uh, citrus from cuttings. And, of course, I, I I was wanting to know that, and I didn't listen to any of it while I'm listening to you. And, <laughs> and so can you, can, you walk us, can you walk us through that briefly? Okay. Well, the first reason that most citrus is not propagated from cuttings is that uh, a cutting-grown citrus for about the first two years – is going to have a very weak root system. Those roots just, you just blow on them and uh, it leans over and snaps the roots off. So, uh, m- most citrus is, is grafted because it's grafted onto a seedling rootstock, which grows a taproot like structure immediately. And you start out with a physically much stronger plant. On the other hand, there is a lot to be said for you know, cutting grown citrus because uh, you don't have to worry about the rootstock re-sprouting and things. But I always tell people, if you're going to grow it from cuttings, plan to give it good support for about two years until that root system is really well established. And when you take it out of your rooting medium, put it in the soil, just be extra, extra gentle with it because that root system is really delicate for the first couple of years. And other than that, uh, not much to tell you about, you know, propagating or growing citrus from cuttings. Other just all the usual, keep the cutting short, strip off the lower couple of leaves. Um, perlite, I think, is still the best rooting medium, although some people use lava sand these days with pretty good results. And uh, if you're doing it during the cool season, uh, you very definitely need bottom heat on that one. Okay. Hey, Bob, you've been most helpful. I'll let you get to other callers. Uh, have a fabulous day. Thank you. You do the same, Matt. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, I've got to get a break in here. Kathy and Don, hold on just a moment. I get to talk to you about another relatively new advertiser that I am so excited about. Hopefully I'm going to get by one of their two locations this week because I've got some cleaning for them, both some wet cleaning and some dry cleaning. I'm talking about Everest Eco Cleaners, and these are the folks that are really doing it properly. They're doing it without all the toxic chemicals that go into dry cleaning most places and without all, you know, a lot of places that wet clean that wash things they're using pretty strong materials and bleaches and things that not real good for your clothing and i certainly don't want that residue against my skin when i go to put that shirt or whatever on everest eco cleaners does it right they use only plant-based organic based materials none of the toxic dry cleaning agents that uh, so many places use plus they give you lots of lots of services uh, free pickup and delivery throughout the san antonio area fast turnaround time 
They will take special care with things that you may have like leather or suede, things like that. I'm going to take them some outdoor cushions that we've had some uh, problem with mildew on and see how they work on those. They're just good people doing it right. Two convenient locations, 4803 West Avenue, which is just inside Loop 410, 2350 Northwest Military, which is so a little ways outside of Loop 410. If you have questions, you can always give them a call. Not on Sundays. That's the one day they're closed. But other days, give them a call at 210-845-1010. And uh, just tell them we sent you. They're good people offering a really, really wonderful service at Everest Eco Cleaners. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Kathy and Don and Jim, and Kathy's up first. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. Good morning. We uh, we uh, live in the hill country just west of Bernie. Okay. Um, and we planted uh, some oak trees, a 45-gallon oak tree, uh, looking really good. We prepped the soil uh, for the last year and a half waiting to, to get that uh, tree in. And then we also planted two 30-gallon uh, empire oaks that mm-hmm. uh, when we put them in the ground, we prepped it good. We did uh, a, we did a hammer drill to break into the rock just to be sure it had good drainage. And then we did berms <clears throat> with a four-way mix and um, put them uh, into the, the berm and so uh-huh. forth. Now their leaves are turning brown and crunchy. The 45-gallon uh, just about... 20 feet away is doing great, but the 230 gallons, not so good. It was about two weeks ago. We had all those high winds. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had a heavy, heavy rain. I don't know what we're doing wrong, if there's any help for them. Well, no, I, 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 I'm assuming that Empire Oak is just a variety of live oak. It's not one that I'm familiar with. Okay. It, yes, uh, I, I think it's just a, a type of live oak. Okay. How often are you watering, and how are you watering? Uh, a long uh, soak, um, just after we planted them, uh, trickling on it for about oh, six hours. Okay. Um, and uh, th- then we got the heavy rain, so we didn't water anything. You know, after that, the ground is pretty wet. Okay. Well, one thing you have to remember, and I probably don't live too far from you because I live west of Bernie. The rains were wonderful, but they weren't real saturating. I had, uh, let's see, 7,400s on one of those rains and 7,800s in the other. And that's enough to wet the soil about two to three inches deep. The root system of those trees is more like 18 inches deep. So unless we get a rain that's three or four inches, uh, you don't count on the rain to have really soak the roots of those trees thoroughly and I always recommend on on newly planted trees and there's always going to be a little bit of damage to the root system in in the transplanting process and I think it's very important that you actually get out there with a hose do this twice a day three times a day as often as you can manage to do it take your hose and just spray up and down the trunks because while that those trees are trying to get their roots reestablished they will absorb a great deal of moisture directly through through the bark. Uh, my suspicion is that your 45-gallon tree probably had a better developed root system and perhaps it's a little bit more resilient, but I, I personally think that your trees are just getting a little bit too dry. And um, 
having brown leaves that turn brown and fall off is not an issue. Have leave, having leaves that turn brown and stay on the tree is not a good sign. I would next time you water, I would get some of this product called Super Thrive. Uh, it's you know the packaging makes it look like snake oil. You can probably get it at Hill Country African Violets over there, and uh, mix that up and use that the next two or three times you water. I my thought is that you can probably reverse this. The trees will probably come out, but th- this business of spraying down, you know, the the upper part of the tree, especially with the winds that we've had the past few days, uh, that's just critically important. Okay. All right, I'll do that. I'll get right on it. We, yeah, Super fry, Thrive, we have a, a bunch of that. And we'll, okay. We and didn't if know you, if we would try Sick Tree or if Super Thrive well, would be better. Yeah, Sick Tree, sick tree treatment is always fine, but it's a more of a long-term process. The Super Thrive is something that gives you almost instantaneous results. And if you plant okay. any more oak trees, don't plant live oaks. Uh, we've just got too much oak wilt around. I'm going to tell you, you need to get in the habit of uh, about every six months, you need to mix up, make some what we call corn water tea, soaking cornmeal and water overnight, and then pouring probably five gallons each around these trees because it, it causes or creates something we call systemic induced resistance that will make those trees uh, pretty much immune to oak wilt. But if you plant more, plant Lacey's oak, plant uh Burr oak, plant chinkapin oak, uh, plant some of the white oak family, the Monterey oaks, plant some oaks that are not susceptible to oak wilt because, unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of oak wilt just west of Bernie, and I sure don't want you to lose trees to that. Okay. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate your help. Let me know how they do, Kathy. Look forward to hearing from you. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly. Uh, next up is Don. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. This is Bob. This is Don down in Divine. Yes, My brain sir. ain't working this time of the morning already. <laughs> My well, how can I help is, today? I've been applying a lot of the molasses and soil activator, and I'm, I'm basically that one acre. I've already put six gallons of soil activator into it because I run it through a chisel and a spreader. I mean, uh-huh. spray nozzles, and I've been adding all the molasses to it. Very Can good. I do a corn water tea and vinegar blend and spray it through the sprayer also? You can. I'm not sure that you really need to unless you're planting a crop that's susceptible to cottony root rot. I I don't think you're going to gain a whole lot by doing that, but they're certainly certainly not going to hurt anything either. Well, you got to remember my grandpa my grandparents didn't they only scratch the ground. They never got right. into the ground and right. at 6 inches I get into the clay, so I'm trying to break the clay. So that's the reason why I'm putting as much as I can into everything I do because well, it, yeah. it, you're you're you doing it right. A, yeah. You're doing it right in encouraging the microbes, but um apple cider vinegar uh and and corn water tea are not really going to do a whole lot you know to improve that so i'd rather see you make two applications of molasses than uh one of corn water tea and one of molasses i i love you know corn water tea for various purposes but where you're just trying to soften soil improve the tilth and improve the microbial life i don't i think you're going to gain a lot more from your molasses because it's the bacteria rather than the fungi that really create this what we call sticky substance is what softens the soil yeah, because remember I was talking about nutsedge? I don't have mm-hmm. nutsedge no more. 
<laughs> well, you're doing it. You're doing it right, Don. But uh, I don't want you to be doing work unnecessarily. If you want, maybe one out of every ten times, incorporate some uh, some apple cider vinegar and some corn water tea. But uh, do what you're doing. Make that your main application. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. Uh, just a thought for you. I uh, know everybody is really interested in having a beautiful yard for Thanksgiving, which is just, uh, what is that, uh, barely three weeks away or not quite three weeks away. You may have uh, you may have summertime flowers, summertime annuals from periwinkles to impatience to begonias. Things starting to look a little faded. Don't wait until the day before Thanksgiving to plant those pansies and cyclamen and all those beautiful things. Go ahead, bite the bullet. Uh, I mean, if things are still looking beautiful, by all means, leave them in place. But if they're looking a little rough and you know they're going to be gone with the first frost, you might think about going ahead and replacing them now, where your new plants will have a little time to get established and look like they've been planted for a little while and make you look good make you look like you were thinking ahead just a thought if you're looking for something fun to do on a beautiful day like this we're going to talk to Don and Jim and Tim and uh, we're going to talk to Don a little bit more about uh, what he's doing and I believe we were up to onions Don go ahead yeah my question is I've never done onion seed planting in the I guess you can fall early winter thing I'm used to spring mm-hmm. when I do the seeding in these boxes do I uh, – is the temperature the the variant that I need to be messing with? More just good, bright sunlight, and, um, yeah, you'll certainly uh, – again, I like to let the seed germinate and then, you know, give it a little bit of bottom heat to speed things up. A uh, lot of people start things uh, in the fall. In fact, the reason – not very imaginative, but the reason they call that wonderful sweet yellow onion in the ten fifteen, that's just <laughs> that's just to remind people that October fifteenth is the ideal day if you're going to plant them from seed. So uh, you're at a great time to be planting onion seed. Keep in mind now that if we get a, a heavy frost before those things have had a chance to harden off, they could be damaged. So get your seed planted, get them up and growing, and if it's uh, if it's been less than two weeks after they sprouted, when we when we do get some freezing weather uh, unless you can protect them otherwise be sure and put some insulate or other row cover over them to give them some uh, some freeze protection okay yeah because i've got a my little greenhouse now it's two by four and i i've never done the winter thing like i'm mm-hmm. fixing to put in collard greens swiss chard carrots beets and radishes and uh-huh. they're they're in a flood dish i, I flood them in a, in the ditch so they're below ground level uh-huh. That is some protection from frost and cold, isn't it? Um, not much. Not much. Cause, uh, you know, any kind of cover, even shade cloth, you know, just keeps the frost from forming on the leaves. And frost can form um, when the, you know, air temperature is above freezing. I, somebody once explained that to me, how the leaf surface can be colder than the air around it. But you just, you really need to keep the frost off the leaves. And all the ones you mentioned, now those are things that uh, I trust you're direct seeding into the ground. You're not trying to grow transplants on those. You're trying to go straight into the ground with that seed, which is what I do. Yeah, because my rows are about 150 foot long, so right. it's kind of hard right. to do transplanting. <laughs> Amen. It's certainly more laborious. So if I'm going to catch a frost, the best thing to do is 
try to go out and buy a bale of coastal hay and coastal hay it in, let it rot as it goes. Well, I'd be real careful because I'll bet you 90% of the coastal hay out there has been sprayed with picloram, and that, that'll kill everything in your garden. Uh, if you can buy a bale of alfalfa, you know, it's going to be a little bit more expensive, but it'd be a whole lot safer. Um, the other thing I would do uh, to speed up that, that bricks enhancement, uh, spray with liquid seaweed. You know, do that every couple of weeks after they come up, and that's going to get them cold hardy faster than just about anything else you can do. Okay, I can do that because uh, my tractors are all set up with spray rigs on them. Excellent. Everything I got's got spray rigs on them now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. All right, I got my fingers crossed. Hopefully, everything will grow out this winter. Well, Don, you're down in Divine. You're a little bit warmer than I am in the hill country, so chances are you're going to have time for things to get up and hardened off. But just Mother Nature, as we sure discovered last year, can throw you quite a curveball on very short notice. So uh, just be prepared and do the do the best you can with uh, with preventing the damage. But like I say, at this point. With that much area to cover, probably your better bet's just going to be to be very vigilant with your uh, with your molasses and seaweed spray because that's going to jump up the uh, bricks content real quickly. That new Medina fish blend fertilizer. Talking to Stuart, uh, he had sold like 250 gallons to a corn farmer, and almost overnight, when this guy applied it to his corn. I don't believe he did it in a foliar fashion. Uh, almost overnight, it doubled the bricks, which really really made for a better crop and made a more insect resistant a lot of other good things happen but at this point let's uh let's try to speed up the uh the uh resistance to cold uh, through things like that all righty thank you very much bob always a pleasure talking to you you have a wonderful sunday right. you too bye. Right, bye. thank you uh all right jim is up next good morning jim um, good morning good morning sir uh got a couple of questions okay. um Got a peach tree that's been covered with um, powdery mildew, and all through the branches and trunk. And okay, that's, not uh, that's not powdery I'm mildew. That's not powdery mildew. That's okay, that's, uh, that's fruit tree scale. It's an oh. insect. Yeah, and you need to spray it with uh, spinosad or neem or even dormant oil. But uh, okay. yeah, you're looking at a, a nasty little insect that usually doesn't get on the main trunk, but you know, out on those smaller limbs, uh, that's a little insect that looks a lot like mildew, but it's sitting there sucking the sap out of your trees. Okay, yeah, it's doing that. Yes, sir. Yeah, but I'm getting a lot of uh, sap coming out of it. And that's that's the result of the insect. Uh, you get rid of the insect, I think you'll find that stickiness goes away. Okay, great, great. I've got emails. So I'll hit that today. Uh, yeah. also and on your neem oil, uh, one other thing, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. be sure your neem is fresh. Neem is one oh. of the insecticides out there that has a very short shelf life. It's only good for about six months. So I always tell people when you're buying neem, put a date on the bottle. Because, oh, that's a good uh, idea. Good it's idea. going to go bad on you before spinosad or most of the others do. Uh, okay, that's a good idea. Uh, irises, how do you? What do you do for them during the winter? We got quite a bit of irises, different colors. Uh, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Just <laughs> let them do their thing. I think it's good to fertilize them in the fall because that. I think gets them off to a stronger start in the spring, and I just use that good old granular organic fertilizer, growing green or yeah. you know, uh, mm-hmm. one of those. Yeah, but 
other than feed? You that's one plant, and it's, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great question because you do not mulch iris. Lots of plants we mulch in the fall to give them a little bit of winter protection. If you mulch iris, you're just inviting in the cane borers, and you're just inviting in the iris rot that gets on those rhizomes sometime. Oh, down to yeah, down to the single digits. Your German iris, flag iris, rhizome iris, whatever you're going to call them, right. they're going to be totally cold hardy and um uh, a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people trying to do the right thing end up doing the wrong thing so other okay. than fertilizing you yeah. just uh you just water if we go for more than two three weeks without rain and your iris will take the winter without any problem at all and bloom beautifully for you in the spring if you ever plant more uh there are varieties and i love the the old german iris but there are varieties now that they call rebloomers and they can bloom several times through the summer instead of just that one heavy bloom you get in the spring in fact my business partner's got uh, one I think is called Stitchery that's one of the most incredible purple and white flowers and it's been in bloom for the past three or four weeks with buds wow. and just all over it so uh, if you if you want to plant any more hours try to get the ones they call rebloomers and uh, you'll really enjoy them oh you're you're a big help okay I, think we got <laughs> I love what I do and I love sharing well you get out and enjoy and uh, you call me anytime I can help you thank you you're welcome, Jim. Thank you. From Jim to Tim. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I've got a question. I'm I am now working at a as a groundskeeper at a park in on Fort Sam. Good. And in this park oh yeah, it's a great job. In this park there's a memorial garden where okay. you have the pavers with people's names on them, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh um, about a 20-foot radius, and this thing has been neglected for, gee, guess how long, approximately two years. Yes, sir. Um, and I'm sure we all know why, but uh, <laughs> anyway, management has tasked me with, with, with two things. The cleanup, which is the easy part, you know, mm-hmm. uh, hackberry saplings and just trashy stuff, you know. But the other thing is this thing has about eight bush roses in it, now, uh-huh. right now they're at about just to make it easy. It's just think six foot diameter on each of them. They're okay. fantastically healthy looking. No fungus, no in no problems at all on them. Management mm-hmm. wants me to take them from that six foot diameter down to about more like two and a half. Okay. On Saturday, now I've got plenty of I've got plenty no. of labor coming in. I've got twenty Air Force no. volunteers. Bad, bad, uh, bad idea. Bad idea. You need I, that's to. Why I'm calling. Yeah, you need to. You need to find an excuse to put it off for maybe as much as a month. And here's the reason. And hopefully, hopefully they're capable of. Uh, I have so many friends in the military that I and I tease them, but I say military intelligence can be an oxymoron sometimes. It seems like the higher up the chain of command you go, the worse the problem gets. But hey, well, assuming thirty years in thirty years private sector as, a, as an aircraft <laughs> mechanic, and now getting into this world, I I can I can attest to that. I well, see it every day. You, you've got a thick skin, so uh, just but but the thing about it is when you cut a rose back and the weather is 
it all warm. You stimulate new growth. That new growth is not cold hardy. And so the ideal time to prune roses is around Valentine's Day. But if you have to do it in the winter months, try to get them to put it off until we get into colder weather. Because this would be absolutely the worst possible time of year to trim a rose because it's almost certainly going to sprout back out. We're almost certainly going to get cold enough weather in January that it would severely damage the, damage the bushes. So if there's if there's any way you can put off doing it, uh, get them to get them to to put the effort into some other areas before pruning these roses. If they won't well, listen well, to these, that, these people these people defer to my advice, especially on anything anything mechanical or a <laughs> garden, because you know. Well. Yep. One one guy working a thirteen acre park, and I've done as much as I can, and it, it looks a lot better. The whole yep. in general, but they, they will take my advice. I am not want to turn you a long term forecaster, but give me a target date where I could post post Thanksgiving for sure, right? Well, if you could tell me the weather, I'd give you more exact date. I know that the date that we tell people in San Antonio, if you want to pick the best time of the year to prune roses, is right around Valentine's Day early to mid-February. If you can't wait that long, then just put it off as late into the winter as you can. But because the colder it is, the less likely it is that those roses will try to sprout right back out into growth. They'll they'll go that long. And and just to to throw them a bone, you know, we'll just do, for now, we'll just do the the monster cleanup. And you know as well as I do, just when you got an area that's so overgrown <laughs> like that, just a cleanup has people going, wow, fantastic. You know? Man, there are days I wish I had 20 Air Force uh, guys out here with a good work ethic to do the work. You're, <laughs> you're blessed You're blessed with some good help, and uh, you obviously are very capable of supervising. So, uh, yeah, there, there are lots of things you can do. The other thing that uh, one big beef that I, I have with uh, Fort Sam, you know, in the cemetery and all over there, is uh, the people that they've had doing the maintenance in the past are in love with line trimmers. And I've seen people, as I'm sure you know, uh, if you want to plant trees over there, they have to be a minimum size, which is pretty expensive. And I have seen so many trees beaten up and killed uh, where people have used line trimmers and stripped the bark off of them. So I hope another program you can get not only in, in you know your area but throughout that area is when trees are planted, either put a you know, a guard around the lower foot of the tree so the line trimmers won't beat them up or be sure that the guys doing the work understand the importance of uh, never, ever touching a young tree like that with the line trimmer because I've literally seen trees dying that had a half-inch gouge all the way around the trunk. And these are trees that people paid four or five hundred dollars to get planted. So uh, that's, that's another area I would encourage you to look at very closely. Well, it's funny here at this place. The people that came before me, for some reason, had some some compulsion to to not not deal with girdled roots when they planted trees. I've got some that are just, I mean, just visually, it just hurts your heart to look at this yep. poor tree with this monster girdled root on. Hey, while I got you, this is a resale of my house as quickly as I can get it done. What's that favorite quick growing 
Mexican sycamore you're always recommending, is that it? Yes, sir. Mexican sycamore is a tree that will be 40, 50 feet tall in less than 10 years. I mean, if you open to sell this spring, you're not going to see that kind of growth. Right, right. But it is. I'm uh, for a you. For a tree with a beautiful trunk uh, that will do, grow and develop more quickly, uh, we've got one here in our parking lot. that We, we planted that in a Monterey oak, which is the fastest-growing oak, side-by-side side about 10 years ago. The Monterey oak's beautiful and about 20 feet tall. Mexican sycamore is beautiful and about 40 feet tall. So it is, in my opinion, the fastest growing, reasonable quality tree. Now, if you're looking for a tree that will grow relatively quickly and be there for the next thousand years, Montezuma cypress is another good choice. But uh, for the fastest growing, nice looking tree, Mexican sycamore cannot be beaten. Good deal. Phoenix, a good source on that one. Uh, Phoenix is a good source. Uh, there, there are actually quite a few Mexican sycamores on the market right now. Hard to find a lot of trees, but uh, have seen some real nice Mexican sycamores out there. So Phoenix uh, or really any of your major nurseries should be able to help you out there. Tell you what, since this is, this is an investment, too, I'll go ahead and pay for, for larger than what I would probably normally do. Well, and, a bigger and, tree. But see, that's uh, um, Phanix and, and we at Shades of Green, we never get anything bigger than 15-gallon because we don't get bigger than one man can plant or can handle. So, right, uh, right. yeah, you're probably going to go somewhere else if you're looking for a box tree. But fastest growing as Mexican sycamore is, I think a 15-gallon tree is a great size to plant. And, I mean, it'll look two or three years from now, it'll, it'll more than triple in size. Oh, good. That's all I need then. And I can handle that as far as the Very good. planning. Thank you so much as always, Bob. Keep up your good work, Tim. Glad to hear somebody right. uh, with a good brain on their heads, <laughs> in their heads. Is, hey, uh, you know, you know what makes it. a line trimmer thing even worse is, is people like us, we run the high power stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you run that diamond, uh, uh, probably that diamond line in there, which cuts a lot better oh, than the round line does. So, uh, killer line, yeah. Yeah, I, I've always said that anybody that's up there girdling a tree, we should uh, give them a little a little shot of it on their ankles, and they'll remember not to do it next time. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Tim, it's always so much, a pleasure. Tom. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, got to get a break in here. Speaking of Phanix, I do get to talk about talk to you about Phanix right now. And uh, Mark and Mike wanted me to remind you that if you're taking part in that uh, SAWS uh, Water Saver Resate, Rebate Program, those coupons expire the 15th of this month, about two weeks from now. So it'll be a great time to get out and get your plants while your coupons are still good because you've only got about seven, eight days here left to take advantage of that. And speaking of taking advantage, and uh, Tim, you might want to pay attention to this too that we just talked. Uh, CPS Energy, if you're in their service area, their Green Tree Shade Rebate Program is in full swing. It'll go up until about next May, and uh, they've got a they've expanded their approved tree list. Even got some citrus on there now. But if you plant a tree, minimum five gallon size, and you put it on a in an area where it will help shade your home, they're going to give you fifty dollars credit per tree. I think that's up to seven trees, and that means that basically, if you plant a five gallon size tree, they're basically buying the tree for you. So if you're in CPS service area, uh, look at the Green Tree Shade. Rebate rebate program and once again Phoenix has lots of trees that will comply with that they've also got some beautiful container grown fruit trees just absolutely amazing how big they are and you know they've got the Traeger pellet grills you know they've got that ego lithium ion battery powered equipment you got your fall veggies just lots of reasons to go see Phoenix and all the organic fertilizers and compost and mulch 
with 15, with 10 acres of nursery, <laughs> Fannie's has room to grow and provide you with a lot of different things. They're over on Home Green Road, right where Grandpa Eddie Fannick started the nursery well over 80 years ago. Open seven days a week to serve you. And if you have, uh, if you want to check them out online, it's Fannick, F-A-N-I-C-K, FannickNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this gorgeous Sunday morning. Hope you remember to set your clock back. If not, you've got an extra hour uh, during the day to get all your work done today. But uh, anyway, we're going back to the phone lines. Donna, Clint, and John are my next three callers, and Donna is up first. Good morning, Donna. Yes, good morning. I have a question. I have a, a red oak tree in the back of the house, mm-hmm. and it's, it's got this drainage I don't, and I sprayed it with this bug spray. I can't remember what the name of this from got it from Home Depot, but it's it's the butterflies seem to like it. Mm-hmm. And is this is. is this something dripping from the tree, or is it something that seems to be just coming out through the bark? It's dripping from inside the tree out. Okay, it probably is uh, it's a bacterial infection uh, we call wet wood. If you'll spray the area with hydrogen peroxide, it will help. Also remember that live oaks really like it dry. A lot of live oaks have been stressed and consequently have developed some problems. I'm sorry, red oaks have developed some problems uh, because of it's been a very, very wet fall. And uh-huh. uh, don't make the you know don't make the problem any worse. Once a red oak is in and established, it should almost never ever need water. But uh, this is it's almost certainly not an insect problem but uh it's actually uh oh i guess you could call it a disease usually the trees will outgrow it uh if you would like once a week just spray or drench that area with uh uh with uh, hydrogen peroxide uh that's going to be <clears throat> excuse me got something in my throat um, that's going to be about the best thing you can do to control it it's just uh uh, it is a kind of it's, it's a sugary uh, excretion that comes out of the tree. That's the the butter reason the butterflies like it so much. Okay, that's what I thought, but I wasn't sure. I said I noticed they've been liking it, so I just bring just any just regular peroxide in the yeah, bottle. Yeah, just get peroxide it. from the grocery store, and uh, you can actually use it full strength out of the bottle without hurting anything. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're certainly welcome. Anything else I can help you with today? Um, no, not at the moment, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. You get out and enjoy a beautiful Sunday. I sure Thanks, will. Donna. I'm going to church. Yeah. Yes. Uh, good thing. Thank you. Okay. Thank uh, you. Bye-bye. Certainly. Clint's up next. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. I was calling to uh, calling to check on see what was that product you uh, used that, on the story. You're talking about the guy's cornfield that tripled his bricks and he didn't have to worry D- about doubled his bricks or... almost overnight yeah it uh it's medina's new uh liquid fish fertilizer um it's it's an outstanding i've been using it for about a year and uh i've i've been alternating with a has to grow on potted plants and, and i grow orchids for a hobby and uh the results have been just almost amazing but last time i talked to Stuart, he was telling me about this uh corn farmer and uh he bought like a 250 gallon carboy sprayed his corn crop with it and in the past he's he's also he's had a problem with aphids and had to go back through and spray his corn uh, to control the aphids later in the season uh when he 
uh, treated his corn, and this is like 100 acres or something, treated it with the liquid fish product. Uh, it, it doubled the bricks, and what we've learned that when you really knock the sugar content up, a lot of the bugs just don't like it. The aphids did not show up. He said he saved so much money on not having to spray for the aphids that his fertilizer was basically free. Now, is this by foliar spraying or on the ground for the roots? This, uh, this was, I believe this was a foliar spray. It'll work either way, but uh, I believe on the corn he did a foliar spray. Okay, but either way, I guess the yeah. foliar, foliar would be a lot faster than going yeah, through the roots. You're exactly right. It's just it would give you a much more immediate pronounced effect, while as putting it on the roots is probably going to give you a longer-lasting effect. Uh, ideal thing would be to do both, but in, in this case, I think his corn was already up and growing. Foliar spray was uh, was the way they went with uh, amazing results. That's not like it might be a better use than the seaweed. Well, in all honesty, there's a lot of seaweed in there. Uh, there are just a lot of additional things in there, but it's, he's got a lot of seaweed in that liquid fish blend. And uh, so it's I guess you'd say that it's one of these things, what they call a synergistic effect, where the uh, some of the parts, where it works better all together than doing the individual things. And uh, this just somehow enhanced the effect of the seaweed and just made things happen a whole lot faster. And this sounds like it should be pretty beneficial for coastal. I would think it'd be really beneficial for coastal. Um, once again, you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of foliar spraying on most things because many times you get foliage growth at the expense of not getting as much good root growth. But in the case of something like a corn crop where, you know, you've already got your root system established, in the case of your coastal where you've, uh, you know, already got a good perennial grass out there, I wouldn't make it my only fertilizing, but I think it would be an outstanding product to use. And by all means, uh, skip a little bit of it. Leave a couple of areas that you don't do a foliar application, and that way you can see what the difference would have been. I was thinking more after after a cutting or something. This way, yeah. it gets more into the ground. Yeah, and if I were gonna if I were gonna use it in that fashion, I'd probably add a little extra molasses to it. Well, extra molasses. Yeah, you know, like molasses goes good with everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not just for pancakes anymore. <laughs> it's not for pancakes. Yeah, and the, the right. thing about molasses, the reason it works is because it is just a great, great boost to the beneficial microbes, uh, specifically the microbes that tend to coat the roots and leaves. We can't see them, but uh, they're out there, and it, this increases our resistance to disease. And it's the same microbes that build the organic content of the soil, and so you're just getting, it's just a real win-win situation. It's, uh, I, I think it's, it's been known for some time, but I think we're seeing the research now that's helping us to understand just exactly how it works and what it does. And there's just not any negatives to it that I've, or anybody that I talked to has discovered. And like I say, you can, uh, you don't want to overdo it unless you're trying to kill nutsedge, but uh, on the kind of way you're going to be applying it to a coastal field no it's uh, the more the merrier and if you're using like a feed grade molasses it may have a little bit of urea in it i know a number of uh, hay growers who just almost quit fertilizing when they started their molasses sprays because with that little bit of urea they've got all the nitrogen they need and uh, growing the best crops and getting the best price for them they've ever had a whole lot cheaper hey amen to that one all right well i appreciate your time 
Always a pleasure visiting, Clint. Thank you for the call this morning. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, better pause here for a second. John, you'll be up next, but right this second, I need to talk for a moment about the Tank Depot. And once again, it's a pleasure just talking about people providing a very needed product when giving you the very top quality at the very best price out there. I always hate it when, you know, some gets really popular, like rainwater catchment, and all the box stores start putting out the cheapest tanks they can find, and there's nothing much more frustrating than uh, two, three years down the road having something give out because you didn't buy the best to begin with. Well, the Tank Depot deals only with the best quality tanks from the best suppliers out there and they're tanks that will last on and on and on. Uh, whether you're into rainwater catchment, whether you need a transfer tank for the back of your pickup, whether you need chemical storage tank or open top tank or bait tank, if it's a tank that's what the business of how Tank Depot is all about. Uh, today you'll have to check them out online at tank-depot.com, D-E-P-O-T, of course. Uh, weekdays, want to go see them? Their retail yard here in San Antonio is right over on Southeast Loop 410, just south of Rigsby Avenue. I'll tell you, it's fun to look at the website, though, because there's more on that website than they could ever put on their sales lot. Just a good company, been around a long time. They can give you delivery, especially in the bigger tanks if you need that, and on Rainwater catchment and do a lot of things to help you get your system set up. They don't do gutters, but they help you just about everything else. That's the Tank Depot. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. The next three callers are John and Mike and Mary, and John is up first. Good morning, John. Good morning, sir. How are you? Off to a good start on this glorious Sunday morning out there. Yes, sir. Uh, quick question. I bought a lemon tree, and I'm debating on whether or not I want to plant it in the ground right now or just plant it in a bigger bigger pot and wait till after winter to replant it. <laughs> it just, in my opinion, all comes down to how well you'll be able to protect it this winter. Nice thing about a small lemon tree, it's pretty easy to cover if you have to cover it. On the other hand, um, you can, you know, just if it's you leave it in a container, then you can bring that container inside. But I'll tell you, unless you got very fortunate and found a really big lemon tree, probably does not need to be replanted at this point. It's, uh, I know, lemon trees, in fact, all citrus is just in short supply because the state won't let us import it from anywhere outside of Texas. And consequently, the trees have just not been very big this summer and fall. So, uh, unless that tree's just really overgrown in that container if you choose to not plant it to wait and, and leave it in the container over the winter months i'd probably leave it in the container that it's in it's not really ready for a bigger pot and a bigger pot's just going to be that heavier and harder to move okay yeah because i've whenever i first got it it was kind of a wilted and smaller it's only about two foot tall yeah so yeah no it's a little bit of uh put a little bit of growing green on top and watered it and about every about every week and a half two weeks i'll put a little bit maybe two two tablespoons of uh some some growing green on it and and uh 
just water it and that's it. And I had it on the back porch, and then when the cold spell decided it was going to drop down in the 40s, I moved <laughs> it in the garage. Well, it's it's fine, actually, down into the upper 20s. Uh, your Myers Lemon, which is the principal one that's sold, they're, they're hardy into the upper 20s. They don't take 5 degrees too well. But uh, just, you know, save your back. Don't do anything you don't have to do. I'll tell you, as much as I love the growing green on things in pots, I usually use Medina, either their liquid fish formula or their has-to-grow plant. I feel like it works a little bit faster once I get something in the ground. The growing green is sure the way to go. But uh, if you want to you wanna give it the, the best possible uh, situation, use, use a liquid fertilizer on it rather than dry while it's in the pot like that. Okay, and um, the other deal was I noticed uh, when I moved it uh, Thursday, it's like three or four leaves from the bottom. They were kind of like wilted, like rolling down. Um, Welcome to lemon trees. Lemon trees when we have uh, lots of wind. Every citrus out there, whether it's satsuma, lemon, lime, anything else, you're going to see some of that curling of the leaves has strictly to do with humidities going up and down strictly the weather nothing that uh nothing john's doing right or wrong on there that's just what citrus trees do this time of the year okay i was that's all i was worried about was making sure i'm like i, I don't want to overwater it i know i'm watering it <laughs> enough i didn't want to mess mess with it too much i'm kind of like letting it do its own little thing so well that's it's a wise thing to do the one thing to remember about water is there's no such thing as too much at one time when you water it really flood it really get it wet all the way through the pot but then don't water it again until that soil's dry a couple of inches deep uh, i see a lot of people cause problems because they water frequently but they never really water thoroughly enough and you got to remember that most of the roots of that tree are all the way down to the bottom of the pot so when you water it flood it but then let it go till it's dry to the proper depth before you water again and you'll never go wrong with watering okay and the only other thing i was going to do i was going to replant it from where it's at into like a uh, a molasses tub that i've had established for a while i've used it for growing uh broccoli and tomatoes mm-hmm. and different things i was just going to move that lemon tree into there that way i could still move it in and out of the garage if i have to well wait wait until spring to do that because okay. the bigger the pot, uh, unless you've got a plant big enough to, uh, that the roots really fill that pot out, it's real hard to maintain the moisture. So we generally don't put a small plant in a great big pot. Uh, you know, it, once that tree is really well established, yeah, you could do that. But in general, you would take it as probably in a three-gallon container now. When it needs repotting, probably should go up to a five-gallon container. Then it should go up to about a 12 or 15-gallon container. And then eventually... Eventually, it will go into that uh, that pot, but it's just so hard to maintain even moisture in the soil that it's generally not a real good idea to put a real small plant in a great big pot unless you're putting a bunch of them in the way you were doing your broccoli and other things like that. Okay. I uh, appreciate it, Bob. Uh, thank you uh, very much. Get you out of a little bit of work and give you some more work a little bit further down the road. John, you get out and have a great Sunday. It's always good to hear your voice. Yes, sir. You too. Thank you, sir. Bye. Adios. Adios.
Ah, you tell you what, now Mike and Mary, be be patient with me for just a second here. I don't want to get behind on this last commercial of the hour, so we'll be back to calls in just a second. But I have the distinct pleasure of talking about Swift River pecans once again. And, uh, you know, there's just, I mean, the pecans are state tree. Let's face it, it's that tree for that way for a lot of reasons. Outstanding trees, beautiful wood, delicious nuts. Also, a lot of folks have gotten into cooking with pecan oil, and it's just one of the best things you can find. And I don't know a better source to find than uh, Swift River pecans. They've got a great website, and they do a lot of mail order. The good news is Swift River Pecans is going to be down at the Pearl Farmer's Market every Saturday through the uh, through the end of the year, I believe. they During some of the season, they've got too much work to do back in the orchards, but uh, for the fall and early winter months, uh, you're going to find them down at the Pearl every Sunday and give you a great chance to get some wonderful pecans for you or for gifts and get things like their pecan oil. Take a look at what they do with their wonderful pecan wood. They They don't cut down live trees but they harvest uh, deadfall, so to speak. They've got two sawmills, and they produce incredible things like mantles, thick-cut pecan. Uh, They have pecan that could be used for flooring or for siding or for, you know, paneling, whatever. They just make good use of what... Mother Nature gives them. They also, these folks know what they're doing. Uh, virtually uh, organic in everything they do and move in that direction all the time. They've won every award that can be won for quality of pecans. They've grafted over a thousand trees just uh, right there in their two big orchards. Swift River Pecans is a great, great organization. Now, they don't do furniture. Somebody asked me about, about pecan furniture. No, they haven't gotten to that yet. But they crack pecans for you. They have great pecans to sell, shelled out. Uh, it's just a good company. Check them out at SwiftRiverPecans.com. Go see them at the Pearl Farmer's Market uh, any Saturday. That's Swift River Pecans. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, we're going to talk to Mary and Mike and Chicken Joe. Mary's first. Good morning, Mary. Hello. Good morning. I was listening earlier, but I didn't get the information on the molasses product, uh, using it on the grass, like a pasture grass or something. Yeah, Yeah, the ideal uh, on pasture grass, the ideal rate is about five gallons per acre. Uh, the water is just a carrier. Uh, you need to, uh, you know, fill your sprayer. Let's say you figure you can do 10 acres uh, with one spray tank full of liquid. Put 10 gallons in there. If you feel like you do about five acres, uh, put about five gallons in there. If you only do a couple of acres, put maybe two gallons to your tank full. But, uh, yeah, five gallons per acre is the ideal rate to apply. There's never a bad time. Most of the hay growers that I know apply it uh, whenever they make a cutting. Uh, then they'll go back and follow up with the molasses, mm-hmm. especially feed gray molasses with little urea in it. Follow up with that right after they've done the cutting. Well, what I have is um, uh, I don't grow grass or anything, but it's just an overgrown uh, five acres that I have mm-hmm. mixed with uh, mesquite brush, the thin mesquite brush, and some tall grass. I'm not sure what type of grass it is, whether it's probably Johnson grass or something. It's got huge roots. Ball, uh, <laughs> well, 
it's uh it, the molasses will will certainly help with the quality of your soil and will help the help with the growth of your grass uh it somehow seems to benefit native grasses even more so people that are fighting care blue stem and things like that they're finding they're encouraging their native grasses and discouraging the mm-hmm. care blue stem a bit so it's a good thing to use uh in any grass run or just about any situation it's just great for the soil and we apply it to the to the leaves or the base of it. Yeah, or the, yeah, yeah. Just as a foliar spray in this case, mm-hmm. uh, in vegetable garden, other places sometimes we use it as a drench, but most of the time it's just strictly a foliar <clears throat> application. And and using it in the uh, like a vegetable garden, you say as a drench uh, mm-hmm. on the plant. Like yeah, yeah. Either as a drench, yeah, drench on the soil around the plants, or foliar spray on the plants. It works well uh-huh. both ways. In that situation, I put about one tablespoon per gallon of water. Okay, and I found a a bottle of Antifuego that I've had probably about eight years. <laughs> still I don't know good. If it's better or worse? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's exactly the same. It has a okay. long shelf life. You can go kill some fire ants this afternoon with it. Oh right. Uh, and one last question: uh, What is what could be done? <laughs> you're going to laugh about the clover and burrs. Is it something we can start doing this time of year? Or? Well, the clover is actually building your soil. Clover is a legume right. that says, "I'm in crappy soil and I want to make the soil better." So don't worry about the clover. Uh, as far as mm-hmm. the burrs, putting a thin layer of compost out there. I just has almost okay. totally eliminated sticker burrs in my yard. So about half inch of compost over the area that you're fighting the burrs, and you'll have many, many fewer okay. burrs next spring. Okay. Thank you so much. And have a my pleasure. Thanksgiving. Yeah, so. you do the same. Appreciate it. Okay. Mike's up. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Mike's up thank next. You. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. How you doing, sir? Off to a good start. How about yourself? Well, you know my saying, Bob, if I was doing any better, I'd be snapping photos. <laughs> well, my, my two black labs lying here at my feet, I think they've got the right idea sleeping in and uh, looking for a ray of sunshine to sit in. But, you know, it's uh, it's beautiful Sunday and uh, going to enjoy this day, uh, as always. Oh, boy, we, uh, we've, had, we've had a few here lately. Uh, we don't get many, but we've had a few. Yes, Bob, sir. Bob, you know, I... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much grow a lot of stuff from seed, and I, uh, I'm standing here looking. Excuse me, <clears throat> it's a Swiss chard that I planted along with some kale, mm-hmm. uh, and you know I've got I've got my uh, my spinny starts, but I'm looking at this uh, this Swiss chard, Bob, and it's supposed to be. It says on the package, forward hook. Now, mind you, this seed package. I got a uh, that was supposed to be. I talked to you about it before. A package of uh, lemon boy tomato, and it turned out to be the best producing little yellow cherry tomato. It's a bigger yellow cherry. Yeah. But in, yeah. Any, anyway, anyway, what I'm getting at is, you know, the pitch. And of course, you know, I know we can't go by these packages, but the picture on this package looks nothing like this chart and and the switch chart yeah 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 the the leaves well, almost look like a spinach i mean it 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 kind of it, you know it kind of yeah. had me and and that's 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 what typical Swiss chard looks like. There have been okay. some additional varieties like uh, what they call uh, bright lights and some of the others uh, that have a much flatter leaf. 
Uh, there are some varieties that have very colorful midribs, have a lot more color in the foliage, but the original Swiss chard, Lucillus or Ford Hook or whichever, uh, it yeah. is a uh, it has a crinkle leaf, very much like spinach. That's a uh, good description. It's gonna be a little bit smoother and shinier than your spinach leaf, yeah. but you're you're looking at typical green chard as opposed to bright lights and some of the more colorful varieties, the ruby chard as it's called. Uh, so I think okay. you're doing fine there. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I just wanted to make sure, Bob, and I figured it was a package because it says Ford Hook, yep. but looking at the front of this package, it looks... <laughs> Never looks, trust the package. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. And Don tells me we've got a lot of lines open, so if you want to get through without a busy signal, this is your chance to dial 210-599-5555. And I need to remind you that this portion of the show is brought to you in part by our friends at the Freeze Miser. This is just one of those amazing devices that I've ever seen. came out last year. I put them on my hydrants early in the season and watched them work. When the water drops to about 37 degrees, when it gets close to freezing... Now, keep in mind, this doesn't have anything to do with air temperature, but the, when the water in your pipes gets to the point that it was likely to freeze and break things, the freeze miser automatically starts dripping your hydrants. It worked with the early freezes we had, and it worked perfectly through the severe cold we had in February. I can't tell you how many people have told me how much they appreciated the freeze miser, and I'm seeing it because a lot of them are coming back and buying more, saying, you know, I did part of my hydrants the old-fashioned way covering them up and things i'm putting a freeze miser on all of them had one gentleman this week bought 16 freeze misers i think he's going to give some of them for christmas gifts as well as putting it his hunting shack and maybe his uh, fishing shack you know down at the coast anywhere that you just don't want to have to worry about a freeze breaking your pipes and your hydrants there are no wires no batteries you simply put the freeze miser on the hydrant turn the water on full blast nothing comes out of the hydrant unless the water gets really cold and then it starts dripping as much as it needs to. As soon as it warms back up, the dripping stops. You can put them on, leave them on all winter. If it's a hydrant that you regularly use a hose, just put a Y connector on there. Put the freeze miser on one side and put the hose on the other. And just turn your hose on and off with the uh, little valve that's on the Y connector. And go to freezemiser.com. You can see exactly how they work. Uh, you'll find them at your favorite garden center, your favorite hardware store, farm and ranch stores. Not going to find them in the box stores, but you're going to find them at people who are selling you top quality products. It's called the Freeze Miser, M-I-S-E-R. Okay, uh, Don, anybody wanting to talk right this second? Okay, John's saying, yes, I sent you a text. There it is. So we got Clint and Angie and Robert, and Clint is up first. Uh, good morning, Clint. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. How are you? I just couldn't be much better unless I was outside, and I'll be there about one minute after 12 today. Sounds good. Listen, I've got a question about some Yopon hollies, if that's okay. the correct. Uh, I put these in the ground quite a few years back, and uh -huh. I've kept them manicured uh, into uh, short uh, bushes, I guess I would say. Okay. And I've got six of them in a row, and the first three look so healthy, deep green. Um, they're constantly putting out new growth. 
And uh-huh. then the last three, which are in the exact same flower bed in the exact same soil, are very yellow, and I can't uh, get them to put out much growth at all. And it's are they both kind of crazy to me because they're all in the same flower bed? Are they? Are they all in? Uh, do they all get good bright sunlight? Yes, sir. And do you water them by hand with the sprinkler system? How's the watering done? I water them. I've got uh, knockout roses behind them, and I uh-huh. I water them all together, basically with with a with a just a small sprinkler when they need okay. it. Okay, okay. I tell you what sounds very possible to me, and uh, this this flower bed is right up against your home. Yes, yes, it is. Builders tend to bury a lot of crud uh, building debris when homes were built and I can't tell you how often uh, back in the days when I was actually doing more hole digging and planting for people that has been a few years ago but how often I would find sheetrock scraps and things like Mm -hmm. that in a flower bed and if you've got anything like that in your soil Yopons, wonderful plants that they are, they like, they don't like the super alkalinity that uh, gyprock, sheetrock, and some of the other crud, uh, mortar slag, other things that sometimes wind up in the flower bed. I would try, there are a couple of things I, I would try. Uh, it's either a deficiency of iron, zinc, or nitrogen. And I've had a bunch of people, I usually have recommended green sand, but I've had some people tell me they tried this product called Azomite, A-Z-O-M-I-T-E. It's just okay. a great, great micronutrient support. I know here at the nursery we got a big shipment of uh, bamboo that came in that was really yellowed, and uh, we put some azomite on there along with some fertilizer. And, I mean, two weeks later, those things were green as could be. So okay. the three three things I would consider, one would be a little bit of good organic fertilizer, two would be green sand, and just, you know, three plants, you're probably looking at two, three cups of azomite. You don't need to buy a lot of it, but it is the okay. most complete source of micronutrients that I have ever found. And that's where I'd start. And uh, I, I doubt if it's anything you're doing wrong, but I'd be, and I don't want you to excavate the whole bed, but I bet you that if you did, you'd just find some things, uh, (laughs) you'd find that, let's just say the soil in one end of the bed didn't have quite as many challenges as the soil in the other end of the bed, because yopons, and this is dwarf yopon you're talking about, there are many, many different varieties, and they just don't have problems with insects and disease, so long as we're getting the same good bright light, the same good watering, I think it's probably something in the soil, and I think it's very correctable. Is that azomite something I could find uh, up in the Bronfels? Uh, I would, deadly? yeah, yeah. Try Wayne up there at uh, at um, the garden center, okay. uh, but any any good nursery. Uh, it has should have azomite on the shelf. If they don't, they should be able to get it for you because we're all okay. served by two principal suppliers, and uh, both of them offer azomite. Uh, so if if they don't have it, they can get it for you. Otherwise, okay. you don't have to drive very far into the big city to find somebody yeah. that's going to have it. All right, very good. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Clint. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Uh-huh. All right, uh, let's uh, talk next to Angie. Good morning, Angie. Angie dropped off. Well, then that just moves Robert up one notch on the list. Good morning, Robert. Oh, good morning. Can you hear me? Good morning, sir. Yes, sir. Loud and clear. Okay. Um, I caught the tail end of, I think you were talking about sandburrs earlier. Yes. 
about how to get rid of them. And I was going to call you with that exact question, but I didn't <laughs> hear your response to it. I've got a, a lot or three lots actually across the road from me. And these sandburrs have come up like magic, uh, a big, huge, you know, bundles of them. Yeah. And with, you know, hundreds of those little thorny <laughs> things. And there's deer that, there's deer that like to hang out there and they wouldn't even go up there anymore because, I, you know. I they, call them, I call them a real pain in the grass. And, uh, yeah, I, I had a, uh, I had a patch like that. It's a place that we, uh, you know, used to use as a croquet court, and I think uh, we just wore the soil down, and Mother Nature hates bare soil, and so she throws in the fastest-growing things she can find, and it was and it was grass burrs, sand burrs, uh, whatever you want to call them. And the way that I ultimately just almost totally eliminated them was simply with mm-hmm. a good layer of compost. I mean, I tried molding. I tried several different things, but I put down, in the fall, I put down about a half inch of good compost over the area, and it was so bad the dogs wouldn't walk into the area the next spring i think i pulled either two or three sticker burrs the entire spring in that area and i think it has to do with the humic acids with the fulvic acids and for me it worked 100 percent now a lot of people want to sell you pre-emergent herbicides the thing about pre-emergence is they don't kill the seeds what they do when the seed sprout and tries to grow they keep it from developing a root system and the problem with the the burrs is they can sprout anywhere from the middle of march all the way through the first of september and you'd be spending a fortune you put be putting about four or five applications of pre-emergent on and uh if just the littlest thing goes wrong they don't work but I, like I said, the, the compost, compost a little bit of fertilizer is what I used, and I got 100% or 99.9% control, and uh, I've been I've been burr-free in that area ever since then. All right. Well, I appreciate that. I went out there with the shovel, and I have a five-gallon bucket, and I filled four of them up with those, yep. and, I, and I haven't even got half of them. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's uh, they they and again, that's Mother Nature's attempt to keep your soil from washing away. Uh, they're an annual grass. They totally die in the winter months. And uh, so it doesn't do any good to go out and spray for them or anything else. And uh, I, I've known people that had uh, were trying to get rid of the burrs that were there that have gotten like, you know, an old blanket or anything like that and just uses a drag and drag through there with something like that or a burlap sacks and then gone out and burned the sacks. But you only have to leave about 1% of the burrs behind and the problem will be back next year. So, uh um, you can, if you've got a mower with a grass catcher, uh, you can mow them down low and get rid of as many of the seeds as possible. But uh, basically, all I did was just the compost, and I just had uh, almost zero burrs the next spring. Well, Bob, I think part of what caused this is we have a new um, uh, landscaping uh, company that comes in and mows. And they mow so much, and all they do is spread those seeds around. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. They're just letting the weeds grow up. You know, they're just cutting everything down. But those darn birds, you know, they don't, they don't need but, you know, an eighth of an inch or half an inch to start 
sprouting seeds. Exactly, exactly. You you cut the tops off, and they just put out almost lateral growth with burrs. Yeah, I've hated them for years and fought them for years, and uh, I still, you know, have a little spot here and there that one will come up, but I don't think I've had any regrowth, and I've got the thickest, prettiest grass in my whole I've got oh, maybe an acre enclosed with a high fence to keep the deer out and then a smaller yard. I had a uh, a field across my creek that I used to uh, grow Sudan for my cattle. And let me tell you, I got a horrible burr problem in there, and it wasn't possible to do the compost on the whole area. Over there, I just got some good native grass blend seed from Douglas King, stopped tilling the soil, and about three years later, the native grasses had choked out almost all of the uh, almost all the burrs. But um, in the area, and you're talking about, I know you want faster results than that. Uh, and uh, again, good compost. Uh, at the time, I got mine from Fertile Garden Supply. They're no longer out there. But I think that location of Stone and Soil Depot that took over the old Fertile Garden location, I think they're still making some of their own compost. But uh, just be- get the best manure compost you can find. And I think you're going to find that's going to go a long way toward controlling all the burrs. Okay, so where I live north of the airport. Where's uh, where's the closest place you think for some good compost? Um, you again. I like the compost from Stone and Soil Depot better than I like any of the others. Uh, there is a Stone and Soil straight out two eighty one, um, well north of sixteen oh four. Or you can go around uh, uh, 1604, just south of Bandera Road. Uh, there's a Stone and Soil Depot location there. Uh, just tell them, just tell them you want the compost that I would buy, just a good manure compost. Okay, I appreciate the info. Thanks. Well, you're certainly welcome. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right, got to stop for a break. I think we've still got a couple of lines open. Grab one if you like at 210-599-5555. I get to talk about Green Grow Organics and Sam Sitterly's company. You know, it's such a great service that Sam provides. He's more of a consultant than anything else, but he will do uh, he'll do things like compost application, help you out with your fertilizing. Not the guy that's going to prune your shrubs or plant your trees for you. But Sam is a specialist in soil health. The guy knows more about compost. He knows more about microbial life in the soil. He's been doing this for about 30 years. Everything he does is 100% organic, and he simply works with nature. Then fighting it with toxic synthetic chemicals and uh, like I say there's hardly a day goes by that somebody's not in the nursery singing his praises and <laughs> have one customer that calls him Saint Sam she said he's helped so much with her landscape and uh, he'll work with you almost any way you like just on a consulting basis uh, he can do things like compost tea application will help you with uh, things like that and again uh, the, the results are just amazing go to his website Green Grow spelled out G-R-O-W Green GreenGrowOrganics.com. Check out the beautiful landscapes and read about his company. Sounds like it's right for you. Call him. Set up a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front, of course. But uh, he sure helped out a lot of people that I know, and he can help you out as well. Sam Sitterly, Green Grow Organics. All right, back to gardening. <laughs> Don and I, you know the way we, we do this, I'm broadcasting from uh, my office here at Shades of Green. Don's back at the station making everything work right and uh, answering the phone calls and, and putting you on hold. And uh, 
Uh, I don't know that we've ever had three Tonys, basically. We have Tony, Tony, and Anthony are my next three callers. So all I can tell you is uh, uh, when I say good morning, Tony, one of you guys is going to hear a little drop in volume. You're going to hear a little bit of change. Well, you're on the line that Don just puts the button for. Then, of course, we do this just in the order the calls come in. So uh, uh, good morning, Tony. Hello, Bob. I hear, yes, sir. Good morning. Oh, okay. I'm the lucky one. Thank you. <laughs> you're the first one. Now, all three of you are lucky, but you're you're first in line. <laughs> yes, sir. Question: uh, Ficus tree, indoor ficus tree, and I have this one that's about 12 feet tall, and it's in a, a good size container. But I don't know uh, how high they actually grow. Do I need to? Um, put it in a bigger container i mean i know that they only grow to a certain height i believe and well, uh, some kind I'll, of I'll tell you i'll tell you what the biggest one i've ever seen was it was about 125 feet tall and about 100 feet wide oh my uh, god that happened to be on the island of jamaica <laughs> and uh wow. ficus you know even the 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 rubber plants that people grow we've got one on the back of the greenhouse it pushes against the roof of the greenhouse and is 20 feet wide uh, a fiddle leaf ficus they used to have one of those in north star mall that was about 30 feet tall so in nature these things are trees and they will grow as big as you will let them grow and anybody you obviously are growing it very well and uh you're just going to have to prune it periodically or else get a higher ceiling. But as far as having a bigger pot, the only two times to replant anything, a house plant especially, are either it's so big you can't keep it standing upright or it's so root bound that you can't keep it watered. It's drying out twice a day. So if you're, you know, if, if you're not having to water it overly, uh, I would leave it in the same pot and feel free to prune it. The best time to prune is in early spring when the days are getting longer and the light's getting brighter. So if you can put it off till spring, do so. But if you're just, if you're just having trouble keeping it adequately watered, uh, then it would be fine to put it into a bigger pot. But don't feel like that's mandatory. I see. Okay. I have a, I have a, my ceiling is really high. I'm not worried about that. It's about 30 feet. So I'm hoping to get that high. But I have another fight here. Okay. I have another one. and uh, But this one here, it, it's not as strong as, as the first one we just talked about. The limb's kind of droopy. So I, I try to prune it where maybe knock off the leaves to try to keep it upright. But it doesn't have the strength as, as this other one where it's more mm-hmm. like a tree. And it is also a ficus, Benjamina? Uh, I'm not sure. It's a ficus, okay. but I'm not sure what type of... Uh, yeah, there are about 30 different kinds of ficus. And some of them, there's actually what they call a weeping ficus, Benjamina, that always spreads out and droops more than being upright. If the foliage is healthy... Um, then it probably is just its normal growth habit. If you feel like the plant is is stressed or just isn't growing as well as it should, uh, the two things, three things, ficus love. They want lots and lots of sunlight. There's no such thing as too much light. Uh, they don't ever want to get bone dry. When they're dry on the surface, it's time to water again. And they love good fertilizer. Uh, Medina's has to grow or their liquid fish, something like that. And uh, so any, any ficus, whether it's the pandurata, the fiddle leaf, the decor, the rubber plant, the weeping benjamina, the uh, one they call alley, ficus maculolandii, the, the, the 
care of all of them is the same. Super bright light, never let them get dry, and feed them regularly. Mm. Oh, okay, okay, very good. Now, I'll tell you one other thing, though, uh, Tony. Let me let me tell you one more thing, and that is they're kind of like a tree in the yard. If they get buried too deeply in the pot, a lot of people, you know, the soil sort of sinks, and they add soil to the top of the pot. If the trunk is buried, it's just as bad for a ficus tree as it is for an oak tree. So you should actually, when you look down at the base of that tree, you should see those roots starting to flare out. If it just looks like a wooden dowel sticking up out of the soil, uh, pull the soil back until you get down to where the roots start. If that means taking away too much soil, then slip it out of the pot, put some soil underneath it, and then put it back in the pot. But check the base of that mm-hmm. trunk and be sure that it's not buried too deeply in the pot. That could also uh, cause it to languish a bit. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that because my wife is listening, and I tried to tell her that before, but she kept telling me just the opposite. <laughs> but yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, you you you're on the right side of uh, of of that. I won't call it an argument. That debate. Uh, you're you're the clear winner on that one. But uh, uh, yes, don't sir. count on that working across the board. It worked this one time. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, Bob. All right, Tony. I appreciate the call, and uh, you get out and press your luck. Maybe this be your lucky day in more than one way. So uh, the next gentleman that I say good morning, Tony, to, you just heard a change in the uh, volume on your phone, and I'll talk to you, and then I'll talk to Anthony. <laughs> good morning, Tony. Good morning, Bob. This is Tony from Marion. Good to talk yes, to you. Yes, sir. Good to talk to you, sir. Hey, so <clears throat> I have a, another question for you. Um I started with three banana trees, and now I've got like 20 or more all in a real close-together area. Uh-huh. I mean, they just kind of populated themselves. Can I separate them? You certainly can. I, I would do it in early spring. I, I, If you do it this time of year, I wouldn't replant them. I'd put them in the garage or something like that until spring. But the uh, best thing you can do is uh, just when, you know, when they first start, pushing up that leaf that comes out of the center and who knows how cold the winter is going to be who knows how far back they're going to freeze but just get in there there's a long bladed shovel some people call it a sharpshooter my grandfather called it a bill dookie who knows where the names come from but uh, just get down there you don't have to really get any roots at all because uh, uh, those banana palms grow so quickly and gosh when I was you know younger we used to get them just like these big old just like baseball bats just these big clubs and uh, we'd plant them out in the spring and they grow like mad so yeah you can you can divide it into 20 individual plants if you want to the time to do that is going to be probably March and if you have any really big trunks if we have a mild winter and they don't freeze back all the way any really big trunks have the potential to give you a stalk of bananas so you might want to leave some of them in place but going around the edge separating out some other ones to plant elsewhere or give it to friends go for it okay and what distance do you recommend <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I think they're prettiest, you know, when they're grown kind of in a cluster and the wind doesn't seem to beat them up quite as badly. But if you want to, you know, if you just want to plant like a, along a fence line or something like that, I'd put them about five feet apart. 
Okay. Sounds great. Discovered I, I agree it, with it the doesn't. Company. Doesn't hurt them to be to be uh, doesn't hurt them to be crowded together at all. So if you want them denser, plant them closer. But ideally, I'd say about five foot spray spacing on them. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Bob. My pleasure. Appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take the third Tony. Good morning, Anthony. How are you today? Good morning, sir. I actually go by Anthony and not by Tony. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll call you properly then, Anthony. Thank you for calling. How can I help? Well, thank you for answering the call. I put you up there on a pedestal of one of the assets for South Central Texas. <laughs> I've known you for years. Uh, the people that own Gardenville were school friends of mine, their family, uh-huh. and I did a lot of organic uh, things from my grandparents. They taught me very well. I run a gray water system here in Universal City. All my bath water and wash water goes in my yard. Excellent. I don't put any toxins on my yard. I do have a reverse osmosis system to take the industrial waste toxins the city puts in my water out, mm-hmm. and that gets discharged to a certain area of my yard. That is the greenest area. So I am lacking some mineral in my yard because other areas, my San Augustine has a hint of yellow usually in it. But where this reverse osmosis water is discharged, it's a luscious green. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, my only objection to reverse osmosis is it wastes water. Uh, RO systems are are necessary in a lot of ways, but uh, they are not water efficient at all. And I think part of what you're going to find is uh, that area is just the area of your yard that gets more water than anywhere else does, and that has a lot to do with that deep, dark green. Now, the, there are three things, four things that will cause a lighter green color. One of them is lack of iron one of them is lack of zinc one of them is lack of uh uh uh, nitrogen and then again just you know not getting as much saint augustine is a is a water hog and i don't object to saint augustine i object to having it fence to fence because uh we don't have any we don't have enough water to water acres and acres and acres of St. Augustine. So you can try maybe adding some azomite. You can try adding a little bit of extra growing green fertilizer. But I'm going to tell you my my suspicion is that part of your success is just the fact that your RO system's dumping more water out there than most of the rest of your yard's getting. Right, I agree. The RO system is a necessary evil since our city toxins us with industrial waste. Absolutely. Uh, and if you want to consume it, uh, what other good grass native here in place of San Augustine can I put in? Because I do annual rye every winter. Mm-hmm. I have the only green yard in the whole neighborhood. <laughs> I use all my neighbor's oak tree leaves and mulch them. I have, every time it rains, <laughs> my yard is Texas tea. Yeah, you're, you're, you're doing it right. Uh, is your yard real sunny or is it partially shaded? Uh, the area up front now became very sunny because I took out a very garbage tree put by the developer. is a okay. Chinese tallow. I chopped them down and put in two oak trees. Okay. Uh, and currently right now, the front yard's totally bare. Well, um, if you there are some good zoysia grasses out there. Zoysia doesn't grow as quickly, consequently it doesn't have to be mowed as often, and uh, but it doesn't stand up to foot traffic quite as well. I like the narrow-bladed zoysias. I do not like the wide-bladed ones like Jammer. I like the narrow blades like Emerald and El Toro, and uh, those are a 
gorgeous, you know, golf green kind of grass that is just absolutely beautiful and doesn't require as much maintenance. But like I say, it uh, is in form of mowing, but it doesn't take quite the foot traffic quite as well. The other choice is just good Bermuda grass. If you uh, want uh, you know, the easiest and least expensive way, uh, you can plant regular Bermuda grass from seed. You can't do that until it warms up in the spring, but common Bermuda grass would, uh, would fill your need. And if you want a denser, thicker grass, you can plant what they call, uh, TIFF, T-I-F-F. There's TIFF green, there's TIFF way, there's several different TIFF Bermudas, but those are the dense grasses. Those are actually the ones they use on your putting greens and things like that. And, uh, makes an excellent grass uh, as long as it has full sun. So those are really your, your, your three choices, common Bermuda, Tiff Bermuda, or one of the narrow-bladed zoysias are your alternatives to St. Augustine. And Douglas Fir there on, four, on 10 and 410 carries the seed, correct? Uh, they carry the seed for common Bermuda. The uh, zoysia, there is one uh, called Zeon that is sold as seed, but generally speaking, uh, zoysias are planted uh, from pieces of sod, and your tiff Bermuda is always planted from pieces of sod. Uh, the best one, if you're going to go with seed, yeah, Douglas King would, would have the uh, good variety of common Bermuda for you. Okay, because foot traffic's gone. My sons are uh, a teenager in their 20s, so I wouldn't worry with foot traffic. This is my retirement home, so I need to now convert mine over. I have Bermuda in the back that I got from uh-huh. Douglas King, and it's going great. Yeah. So I'm going to convert the front now to something better, and hopefully there my gray water system that my neighbors call the city on saying I was storing chemicals in my blue barrels <laughs> instead of rainwater uh, will benefit me during the drought seasons. Well, and uh, you're doing it right, and if you want to get away from that RO system, just uh, go the extra step on your rainwater, putting in a UV filter and all, and uh, uh, that's the only water out there I think that's better than RO, but uh, my friend John Kite did at one point, I think he'd gotten up to about 60,000 gallons of rainwater catchment on his large hilltop lot, and he had the cleanest clearest most beautiful crystal clear ice i've ever seen and i think the best tasting water i've ever tasted so that's the one alternative to an ro system but uh if you're doing that you need to get a good uh uv filter and things to go with it but it's Uh, a pleasure visiting with you anthony so uh you keep on doing it right out there and set an example as you're doing for your neighbors Okay, I got a southwest metal roof put on no penetrations gutters or nicks i might do the rainwater harvesting as well That'd be perfect. That'd be perfect. I hope you like your Southwest Metal Roofings. I hope you like your roof as well as I like mine. Oh, yes, I love it. Thank you. Very good. You're welcome, Tony. Anthony, thank you. All right, Don, I've got to get a break here, and then we'll be back with more phone calls. I get to talk about Wild Birds Unlimited, and that's another of my favorite places to talk about because wild birds unlimited is just a fun place to visit costs me money every time i walk through the door because i always find more than i went in for and if i just go in to look around there's always something new there that i somehow just have to have where i do most of my gift purchasing i love wild birds unlimited you know they are a franchise but each franchise they shop for their own individual gift merchandise and let me tell you there's just no wild birds unlimited I'd ever visited that's up to the standards that kind 
and his staff have for the Wild Birds Unlimited. They're in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner. If you're a birder, you should know that they have wonderful suet feeders and all kinds of suet cake that your wintertime birds absolutely love. You should know that they do a winter blend on bird seed. I don't know anybody else that does that so that you're getting the the seeds that the birds benefit most from during the cool months. And, of course, they have wonderful feeders. Ah, and if you're looking for a new hummingbird feeder or maybe you want to give one as a Christmas gift, maybe you've got some Rufus hummingbirds overwintering, they've got great hummingbird feeders that have the built-in ant stoppers. Wild Birds Unlimited has great binoculars at very reasonable prices to enjoy that outdoor viewing. And, of course, so many things that just add beauty to your landscape and your environment. Wild Birds Unlimited is just a wonderful place to shop. They've extended their hours uh, for the uh, for the holiday season. I believe they're open, golly, I think it goes until 8 o'clock uh, most nights. And they're open on Sundays, uh, you know, uh, for quite a few hours. I've got it written down here. 9 to 8 are their new winter hours for Wild Birds Unlimited weekdays, and then 11 till 4 on Sunday. Make it easier to shop at one of the best places I know, and that's Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. We'll probably finish the show out with Karen, Glenn, and Scott, and Karen is up first. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Bob. I have a Good morning. couple of questions about crepe myrtles. Okay. Um, I've got a crepe myrtle that I guess is just eaten up with aphis. I mean, the, the, all the limbs are white. I've tried to treat it. I went to the garden center, and they gave me some stuff to put around the root, um, which I know takes a while. And then I also got some neem oil. I've done several things to it, and I just can't get rid of it. Okay. Um the aphids, if that's what it is, um, they they always hit plants that are a little stressed. And I tell you, nine out of ten crepe myrtles that I look at are buried too deeply. First thing I would do is make absolutely certain that that root flare is totally exposed. I mean, if that if it looks like just a piece of wood coming up out of the ground, it may be buried as much as twelve inches too deeply. And when you start pulling the soil back away from the trunk you may find some little fibrous roots go ahead and rip those things out until you get down to where you start seeing the bigger roots flare out and I'd be willing to bet you that your crepe myrtle is buried too deeply and that's why you're having so much problems with aphids and other related creatures Uh, this late in the season uh, the leaves are going to be off pretty soon the insect problems are going to be minimized what uh and and i don't like the systemics you put on the ground and want them to go up through it they're too poisonous for one thing and they don't really work that well uh so i would expose the root flare and then i would probably spray it with something called spinosad soap s-p-i-n-o-s-a-d spinosad soap uh, it's non-toxic to people and pets but it is the best aphid killer best killer of most insects i've ever seen and it will not bother the birds will not bother anything else but uh I'm going to tell you, start with getting that root flare exposed because I think that's where your problem's beginning. Follow it up with your spinosad soap, and I don't think you'll ever have a problem again. Okay. And another thing is two of them are planted, I don't know why they did this, in a flower bed when I moved here right close to the house. It's a built-up flower bed. Uh Um, Is that a problem with the root system? No. 
No, the roots aren't going to cause any problem. Uh, uh, they don't mind being, you know, together. The fact that the two plants may grow so close together will keep them from developing, you know, a real round shape. But uh, not going to be a problem to a foundation. Your foundation has what's called a grade beam. Uh, roots aren't going to go that deep, and there's nothing under your foundation that the roots would want to get to. So I would have no concerns at all. He's just okay, okay. just learn learn from the bad example, and if you plant more of them, spread them out a bit. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, thank you for your information. You have a good weekend. You do the same. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Karen. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Let me get my last break out of the show out of the way here so that I'll know exactly how much time I have for Glenn and Scott. And I get to talk to you about Dr. Mark Williamson, and that is always such a pleasure. Dr. Mark took over. Uh, well, he actually worked with Dr. Staffel. Dr. Staffel is looking for the best dentist anywhere to join him in his practice. And now that, unfortunately, we've lost Dr. Staffel, Dr. Williamson continues maybe even better than uh, than uh, uh, Dr. Staffel did. You know, he's just one of the most capable, competent dentists I have ever encountered. So many people in modern dentistry, they want to send you to specialist after specialist if it's anything more than a simple clean or fill. That costs you a lot of money, wastes a lot of your time and doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get the best dental care. Dr. Williamson is so capable. He is so broadly trained and has so much experience. There's virtually no problem as far as your oral health goes that he can't solve. And he does it in such a friendly, relaxed atmosphere. I mean, if you're really really concerned about dental issues, they do practice sedation dentistry like Dr. Staffel pioneered. But it's such a friendly, just welcoming situation that... uh, People tell me they, they, they can't say anybody really loves going to the dentist, but they tell me this is one of the most pleasant experiences they've ever had. And you know that maintaining good oral health will add years to your life and pleasure to your life as well. Nobody's going to be better at helping you create that than Dr. Mark Williamson. Learn what I'm talking about. Give his office a call, 341-2569. It's 210-341-2569 for Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. I heard you had to drive him home after two umbrella drinks. I heard he's got a Prius cause he's into being green. My buddy said he saw y'all eating that sushi stuff. Baby, that don't sound like you. That don't sound like love. Sounds like it sucks He can't even bait a hook He can't even skin a bug He don't know who Jack Daniels is Ain't ever drove a truck Knows how to throw out a line But not the kind in a building stream bug Oh, Don, I don't know where you find him. <laughs> As anybody who listens for long knows, the last commercial break of the show on Sunday's Dawn, find us a good song, usually related to nature or fishing. Uh, If he can't bait a hook, I guess he's not much of a fisher person. So let's get back to gardening. We've got a few minutes left in the show here and talk to Glenn and Scott. And Glenn is up first. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I've got a uh, clover problem. I've got an area that's about 50 feet, 60 feet long by 20 foot wide. Okay. And it's just almost solid clover. And uh, I understand that's bad. That means the soil's bad. 
but whenever it rains, I get mounds and mounds of earthworm, you know, uh, popping up all over the same area. Mm-hmm. Which, w- what can I do? Um, <laughs> is is this shady or sunny? It on and off. Kind of depends what part of the day. Okay. If you want to, you know, resod with the good variety of St. Augustine, like Palmetto or Del Mar, you can certainly do so. But um, the, you know, your clover's just obviously working at building your soil. It's obviously working because the healthiest thing you can have in your soil is lots and lots of earthworms, and they're just, you know, processing things in the soil and making that soil better every day. So. Um, I, to me, I, I would just tend to leave it alone. The grass will grow back in there. If I were going to do anything, I would just, uh, get a few squares of, uh, a good shade tolerant St. Augustine. Like I said, my two favorite varieties for that would be either Palmetto or Del Mar. And I just plant a few little squares of the St. Augustine in there. It will choke out the clover. Good, healthy St. Augustine is much stronger, and it sounds like your clover is doing a good job of improving the soil. So I would either just, you know, live with it and let the grass around it gradually move in and take over. I don't know that I would go to the expense and trouble of solid sodding. If anything, I'd just put some, you know, little four-inch squares of St. Augustine in among this area, keep the clover mode so it's not too tall. It'll probably be the fastest-growing grass you've ever seen. All right. Uh, fantastic. I appreciate your time, sir. Well, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate your call, Glenn. Thank you, sir. Thank and you. we will finish the show up today. Might have time to tell you a couple of things to be thinking about doing, but uh, we'll get Scott's question to wrap up the questions for the day. Good morning, Scott. Morning. Sorry, morning, I'm watching sir. my lab roll around in a mud hole. Enjoyable. <laughs> 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 it's a it's a beautiful Sunday morning for whatever you want to be doing. I'm telling you. Um, I had a question about pittosporums. Uh, I have two of them uh, out of three that survived in a raised bed on the north side of the house. Okay. And I want to raise the bed, not well, the soil level about okay. I don't know four six inches. All right. And the plants are about six to eight inches tall. You know, okay. fresh growth and everything, still growing. Uh, do I actually need to dig those up before I raise the soil level, or can I just add the soil all around and they'll well, keep growing? Yes, you know, you can't you can't just add the soil all around them and expect them to keep growing well because burying the trunk long term is going to cause problems. Uh, right. The so two it's options, like a regular bush or tree. Yeah, the two the okay. two options are either dig them raise the soil and replant them and if they're small shrubs that might be the easiest thing to do the other thing you could do would be to in effect build a little silo around them and without looking at the bed i can't tell you how practical this is but let's say your your bed is uh you know edged with rock or brick or something like that you can just in effect create three little wells around them where the trunk uh, still gets air instead of soil piled up against it. You just want to have continued air circulation above the root flare of the plant. So um, depending on the situation, you might be able to do something really attractive with just a, you know, a little ring of four-inch thick uh, 
uh, limestone or something like that or sandstone or pavers or whatever whatever would look nicest but if you could hold the soil back away from the trunk of your pits and then you know just fill in everywhere with however much you need to add uh, that would solve the problem without having to dig them up and replant them and uh, could be in my opinion could be fairly attractive okay and uh, uh, powdery mildew on roses uh, what was the cure for that yeah, the best thing for powdery mildew is uh, whole ground cornmeal soaked in water. We call it corn water tea. Start out uh, for black spot and powdery mildew both over the winter months. Uh, just dust the soil underneath the roses with your whole ground cornmeal two or three times. That's really going to cut down on the amount of powdery mildew you have next year. And if it shows up, then just soak uh, two, three tablespoons of cornmeal in a gallon of water. Soak that overnight and use that as a spray. Uh, that'll be the best uh, mildew controller you ever had. Could I trim them now instead of that? They haven't been trimmed yet. I just planted them this year, this spring. Yeah, you need to hold off. Five, six feet tall. Yeah, you need to hold off probably until about February or so to trim. If you trim now, you're going to stimulate a bunch of new growth, and then when the cold weather hits, it's probably going to freeze things back. Uh, The two best times of year to trim bush roses, one of them's right around Valentine's Day, the other time's right around Labor Day. So uh, I'm going to put off the pruning for a while. If you can't wait all the way till Valentine's Day, wait until we get into the coldest part of the winter because that will, uh, you know, that'll reduce the chance that you'll have a lot of new growth sprouting up, which would then freeze back. All right. You can fertilize Uh, right now. You can mulch right now. So uh, you can find plenty to do out in the yard today. I'll keep you busy out there. Oh, I'm sure. I got plenty to do without that. (laughs) Well, you get out and enjoy. Thank you. You too.